Okay, welcome to Eric's Perspective. Uh, joining me today is CCH Pounder, actor, uh, artist, art advocate, art supporter. Thank you so much, CCH, for joining joining us today. Thank you. I'm, Thank you. All I'm the in- A introductions. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in my gallery in Fullerton, and CCH is in uh, New Orleans. And so, again, thanks a lot for spending time with us today. Absolutely. By the way, I'm in my kitchen in New Orleans, so this can be a very sweet conversation. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. You know, that's the thing about a kitchen is a lot of art takes place within the kitchen. I mean, uh, culinary arts. (laughs) So anyway, CCH, I thought I would get us started by just uh, asking, um, how did you get started uh, in the arts? Okay, well, I I did um, have a an opportunity to be an artist or be an actress. And they were sort of 50-50 at the time. And I had a wonderful mentor, Stella Curran, who said, well, you know, as long as you have your hands and your eyes, you can be an artist for the rest of your life. Acting is kind of like for young people if you look at what's going on. And so I thought, well, I'll be an actress for the first half of the century and I'll be an artist for the second half of the century. And of course, that is not the way life happens. Um, But it was an attempt to get the acting bug out of my system. And alongside that, because I couldn't dedicate enough hours in the day to visual arts, I started introducing other artists to actors. And it was a wonderful symbiotic uh, relationship because actors usually have a little bit more money than, than artists do. And so to be able to buy emerging artists work at a reasonable price for um, starting up actors was uh, really a wonderful opportunity to blend these two um, visual arts together. And um, it started from there. And then I wanted a, a gallery of my own, of course. I met my husband. We created the first Museum of Contemporary African Art in Senegal. And we did that for almost 20 years. And then he willed the museum to the country of Senegal. But I still had um, a large collection in the United States. Uh And I thought, well, instead of just having it in my home, I, um, I formed a foundation and I am working on now paring down the collection uh, choosing works that I think that have longevity and I'm sort of cataloging and archiving them and putting them together for um, future viewers. Oh, I think that's excellent. And I'd like to explore okay. that before going there. I was just curious uh, during this time where you're kind of being pulled in two different directions, acting or uh, uh, creating art, was there a particular, in terms of the creating art part was, were you drawn to painting or sculpting or, or did it really, uh, matter or was there any specific well was- it did matter because it was a matter of dollars so uh-huh. i could afford paints and i could afford pencils uh-huh. so i did lots of drawings and um i did lots of self-portraits if i was the only person in the room if somebody else came into the room i would um <laughs> beg them to sit for me for a while uh that kind of thing do you still uh are you drawing and and, and painting and doing any other in, visual in a now? different way um i do like doodles and sketches of one day I would love to paint this. And so I have a lot of sketchbooks that are 
a quarter filled, half filled, one page, you know, um, every journey I do, every moment that I do, I get a sketchbook because I'm going to sketch something for a future painting and um, it never happens so far. It hasn't happened. And I think that my, my work in the theater and in film has been fairly all-consuming. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot of work on the page. Yes. And so it's really hard to get to that uh, other thing, you know. No, I can understand. I mean, you're, you're an artist in a different way as an, as an actor, and um, you, you have done so many things, accomplished so much in that area, so I can totally understand uh, you know, it kind of reminds me, I, I uh, was the representative of the Palmer Hayden estate for the longest time. He did this autobiographical painting, Midnight at the Crossroads, and he was at a similar crossroads. He was trying to decide whether to be a visual artist or a musician, and he ultimately uh, selected the visual artist part. But it was just interesting to see the parallel there. I, I guess if for a lot of folks, a lot of artists, uh, they, they, they reach that point where they have to kind of figure out which, which path am I going to go down? And it does seem to require, I think a lot of folks, art is such a, no matter what type of art you're practicing, it requires a lot of time and practice and so forth. So that's the thing. It's a serious commitment, I, I would think. A, a lot of times there's, a, I think, a stereotype of artists that it just sort of happens. You get clunked on the head uh, uh, like by a wizard and boom, it just simply happens. But it requires a lot of dedication, a lot of time. Uh, am, am I right? You know, you don't even realize how much time you're putting towards it because it's, I can see my initial idea. I have an initial idea and I've got to get it down. So I'll scribble it on paper. I'll be pulled over in the car and be 10 minutes late for the thing because ah, this is a great idea. I'll write it down or I'll do a quick sketch. Then I now take that quick sketch and I kind of go, well, how to flesh it out, how to put it together. So there's a lot of thought before I even do now the next sketch. Yes. And then it's what paints it, what medium will I use? What do I add to it? And that can take for me some time. I have to tell you that it's an individual thing. I know artists who can whip out 12 paintings a day because yeah. they have had that kind of practice where they wake up in the morning and painting is part of their everyday practice. Yes. Me, I'm kind of grabbing it from inspirational corners. So I don't have the discipline. And there's another thing, Eric, because I haven't had my hand on it, the paintings that I did 30 years ago are far superior than the ones I did 10 years ago or five years ago. Uh -huh. Because 30 years ago, I was actually applying the skill and craft yes. to the work now it's more like well you know cc did it and there is a kind of cachet in that but it's i highly would not recommend it so what i do instead is that i've chosen small pieces to do so i will make jewelry instead something small and that i can appreciate and complete and then that gives me a great deal of satisfaction and then I feel that I've done it, done it to the best of my ability. And so I am far more comfortable making small works. Um, even the way I write a letter these days is, a, is an art production. Yes. And 
to, I mean, a snail mail letter. Yeah, sure. Actually get it out there. Um, it's sort of, oh yeah, two weeks ago, I was going to finish off that letter to Betty Sarr. <laughs> Betty's like, I didn't get my letter. <laughs> it's interesting you say that too, in this age of email and stuff, it's the lost art to, uh, to just sit down and, and write something. It's so much more personal. You see the hand of the person and, yes. and the paper and so forth. That's a, it's interesting you say that. Um, well, I always feel intimidated by her because every letter she sends me is an individual piece of of art she she always embellishes the letters and it's always such a sheer joy right yeah. and i always feel like i've got to at least show her that i can do something and you know i panic like sending this letter to betty so it's, it's can, been a lot of fun though yeah, yeah i can understand so um I wanted to shift over to when you established the commercial art gallery out here in yeah. uh, Southern California. So how did that start? I, I, I understood from what you said earlier that you wanted to help promote the artists. And I'm assuming that it sprung from that. But. I did. It, it started in the nineties. Um, and on the Pico corridor, which was looking pretty frumpy, um, there were quite a few empty spaces. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can start a gallery there. So Pounder Cone Art Space was born over there at Pico near Hauser. And um, very shortly afterwards, uh, Masai's, uh, now I'll say his name and ruin it, Halulual's gallery, the Addis um, Art Gallery came into being. Uh -huh. And then right after that, Terrell Tilford. So we had this sort of triumvirate of three uh, galleries. I was showing the diaspora, um, Tilford, African-American, and Masai was showing works from um, Addis and uh, Ethiopia in general. Yes. And, um, it became quite a wonderful little thing. There was a cafe that uh, at the corner that we persuaded, you know, to be open late on the nights that we would have openings. And so we, we banded together and we were a little island of, um, of an artistic um, endeavor. And it actually, I think, introduced a great many people who to this day have now got a love of art and collecting because of those initial years that uh, our group formed. Um, Prior to that, just down the street, the street had a little bit of history. The very first um, African-American gallery was, um, the name has slipped me, but Ta even you. Tanner Gallery? Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, was also on that, um, on that road about three blocks down. So uh, we carried a little bit of history with us and we carried this sort of new wave of young collectors. And um, it was up until it wasn't a very successful endeavor. Tilford and myself were both our, um, actors. So oh. we both had this push and pull as to get our galleries up and running and then dash off to auditions and get a job. <laughs> our, our jobs absolutely supported um, the galleries. But I think it's so beautiful that the both of you chose to do that just because, as you say, and I think it's a beautiful thing, you introduced people who might not otherwise have been introduced uh, to the artist. And I think it spotlights the importance. I mean, I say this as a gallery owner too, so, but yeah. I, I think it spotlights the importance of the, of the gallery. Uh, it's like an ecosystem and uh, an integral part of that ecosystem are galleries like yours and 
Terrence Dilford's and the other galleries. Uh, you mentioned Tanner Gallery, which, by the way, for the listening audience and the viewing audience, was um, started and run by um, Samella Lewis for the for the longest yeah. time. So, I mean, these galleries are essential to the whole ecosystem for artists, I think, and it's just a beautiful thing. That well, you I just have to that. mention a, a postscript on each one of these three galleries. Masai went back to Ethiopia and has now introduced a great many Ethiopian artists to the rest of the world. Um, he also has um, uh, a gallery in London so that he's opening it up. And I would imagine that he may even come back to the United States one day, but he has really introduced some marvelous artists from Ethiopia. Tilford, who also stopped, like I, as I did, went into um, film and television business full-time, missed it and reopened um, under the name uh, Gang Band of Vices on uh, Adams, when the Adams Corridor was opening up. Oh. And CCH over in New Orleans missed it. And I bought a house that's the foundation house that I said I'm now archiving and putting together. And up until COVID, we were doing small uh, presentations, um, studio visits. And so with an invited audience and going to see what the people are doing. So it hasn't ever left us. It's ah. just transmuted into just sort of different ways of getting things done. Which is great to hear, by the way. And I'm so glad that that's Thank the you. way it happens. Fantastic. Um, so once um, COVID, uh, hopefully and thankfully, goes, uh, it goes, um, it gets under more control, let me just say, uh, mm -hmm. will, will the, those activities resume? Uh, I'm just curious. Yes. Well, it's actually been marvelous for me because it helps me now get those archives together a little bit more quickly because there's more time dedicated to it. So what I'm doing is the Foundation House of New Orleans, which we certainly hope to be up and open. And um, you would visit it as you would visit a reference library. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if someone were to visit, so uh, is it the situation where works are hung on the wall and that kind of thing? You can... Um Works are on the wall, salon style. Okay. And then works are in archive filing. And um, if you would want to see an, an original of the piece, then that would just be an appointment and it would come and it would be hung in a room for viewing, et cetera. I see. And this yeah. this is not a commercial setup, basically. It's, it's just it's just it's just somebody who's interested in wanting to know more about these particular artists about yeah about particular artists and i think that's going to be important because i've been collecting work of the african diaspora for about 40 years uh -huh. so at least i have some lineage to show people yeah. and right now um while african art of all kinds everywhere are on fire um and people are grabbing young artists still wet behind the ears, still sensationalizing their potential mm -hmm. before they've actually even got there. I think it's going to be good to have what I have as a kind of, it'll give you the arc of uh, how far they've come um, in the last 40, 50 years when, when you would see my collection, I think. Yes, I, and I think that's such a good thing to um, engender what I would call uh, connoisseurship. In other words, just... Uh, like you said, sometimes it's a flash in the pan, not just in terms of the African art, no matter the art market in general has that uh, capacity sometimes and uh, tendency, shall I say. And uh, 
you know, artists are pushed out maybe a little too soon before they're ready. And that can, that can kind of distract. It's not good for the artist. It might be in the immediate sense, but it's almost like eating, eating fast food, you know, it'll, it'll cure the hunger, but unfortunately it's not sustainable. <laughs> but, uh, so I was That's just, uh, uh, yeah. And you mentioned there over how many, approximately how many pieces uh, in that uh, foundation that uh, are being uh, archived, roughly? In terms of paintings, there are about 450 paintings. In terms of sculpture, there are about 300 pieces. I think I'm in the thousand category from small to large. Oh, that's impressive. Uh, at, this, at this point. And that's why I said that COVID, in fact, has been sort of wonderful because um, it's given opportunity to sort of sort through. Yeah. And there will be a time, I think, where I will cull and sell off. And then this will be the CCH Pounder collection. Um, this would be the one. And But, you know, that's ever changing. And let me tell you, I have never sold a thing. <laughs> people have said just give me that one and yeah right <laughs> three more it's very hard it's a it's a magnificent love affair that i've had with with art and i'm just really delighted that i have the discipline to stick to art of the african diaspora because there are other artists uh, japan china you know australia that yeah. I'm completely fascinated by, and every now and again, I'm tempted and I'll go ahead and do it. And, you know, that's like in my private, private, private collection. Yes. But, um, um, yeah, it's, it's really tough. The, I am in love with artists. I, I have to say. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think also having a focus enables you to understand what you're collecting a little better, perhaps too, yes. as, as you yes. delve. And it does in. give it a narrative of some kind, you know, it does give it, um, a focus, a narrative. There, it really does have a story when you see it, and I think my choices also tell you a lot about me and my story. Um, heavy portraiture, oh. um, uh, the female gaze seems really important to me, um, in the sense of I think I grew up with females as muses. And it's so wonderful to have female artists within your collection that just look out in a kind of different, more confident, more um, empowered way. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's kind of fascinating to see the, the progression of all of that. That's fantastic. And over the span of time too, I imagine um, as you look back and you see what you collected when you began collecting and see what you're collecting now, uh, how do you how do you compare those two things? Have you seen Have you noticed any sort of uh, shifts or of any kind? There are shifts because there is a, there is a moment when you were collecting really for yourself and your own pleasure, and then there is a moment you're collecting for um, the pleasure of others. That and that's the one wonderful thing about having a gallery is that you don't necessarily have to comment on whether you like this artist or not, mm -hmm. but what this artist is doing, it's important for the other people in the world to see this opinion and as opposed to that opinion. And yeah. I think um, a lot of gallerists don't necessarily take that into consideration. It, a lot of it is, will that sell or won't it? Right. Um, but I, I really like the idea that 
artists are in some way the visual newspaper or magazine of our times. And I like to collect within our time frame, even if there's a historical reference at some point, yeah. um, even if there's a sort of a reflection back to um, how it was, uh, and and of course the futuristic one of where that particular artist feels that we're going. And I I like all of those when I'm showing it to everybody else. My personal preference is always um, much more narrow because I can see over time that I've actually bought in a funny way, the same painting over and over again. Mm. And it's about um, the, the African American female, uh, the African female um, gaze, um, where she started, what she's doing, what she's fighting for, um, all within the manner of the painting. So, yeah. That's interesting. And I'm also curious. So, um, and I, I like the idea that you're collecting works from the African diaspora. And I mean, that just includes so much. It's not just limited to African-American, it's African-Caribbean, right. I'm imagining, and from Af the continent yes, it itself, is. et cetera. I was just curious to know, um, is there, have you noticed any uh, kind of common thread though that runs through say a work by a, an African-American artist that you see in a work by a Senegalese or perhaps a Ghanaian or Afro-Caribbean artist? Uh, yeah, there, there actually is a difference. Um, the the African-American artists I find, um, except for those interested in, in abstraction, um, tell the tell the story of the African American in in his time and um, the events in his time, the um, the reaction and the impression of those uh, events in his time. So um, a great deal to do with how the other sees him and um, and then how he wishes to see himself. Mm -hmm. And I think that I can say categorically, I am seeing that up until this very day. So I could follow, say, from a Jacob Lawrence who tells our narrative history all the way down to, um, like, say, a Roger J. Carter who makes all of his works uh, with toy soldiers. So thousands of toy soldiers that make up a face. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, Still, within the context of history, his preference is always for, say, um, a James Baldwin or a, a you know, the the well known and the um, and the political. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And African, uh, say the Senegalese, there is a fascination in tradition, in ritual, in spiritual, um, that always seems to be somehow weaved in to the, the story, uh, the visual story that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. His sense of the abstract, even though you can see people, is different where you can see the how Picasso was influenced because just how he looks at sculpture and how he sees um, a moving face with maybe three or four eyes or just all the, the different changes that he creates in his, um, his work is, is decidedly different. Mm. And and you can also see sometimes the European influence of where he, where his skills were learned. Ah. So, um, 
nature seems to be a huge part, at least the paintings I've chosen, uh -huh. seems to be a huge part of um, what he sees and his richness of color and his lack of fear in um, an amazing amount of color saturated work um, seems to repeat in how I choose. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And it's also interesting because I know in my own experience as a gallerist, um, a lot of folks aren't, and I respect this, but a lot of folks aren't really that thrilled with, uh, say, abstract art. They kind of they kind of can't right. connect with it. Um, and yet uh, there's so much out there, I think, that's being missed. I mean, there's so such great works that are, are, are actually abstract. I was just curious to know um, your, your impression about just generally speaking, abstract uh, works? Well, I really understand the need, particularly the American need to see oneself. When, and you see it in England, you see it in all places that were colonies where we seem to have been eradicated visually from books, you know, flyers, yeah. paintings. And so when I would, okay, perfect example. I'm in my bedroom, my mother's in the kitchen and she goes, kids, kids, come on down. There's a black person on TV. She hasn't seen it yet, yeah. but she's heard the voice. And we all have to come and look. Yeah. And it's like, oh yes, there they are. The importance of that is about representation. Yeah. We, our representation means that we are there. Mm -hmm. We are here. And so I think, I have no objection to seeing over and over again um, our image. Now I can make it a, a comparison sort of with abstract work in terms of my work as an artist uh, on television. I have played for many years uh, an autonomous, intelligent, smart, strong, um, the, the center of, um, she is, this is without words, she is the moral center of the story. Oh, okay, <laughs> why can't she be wicked and badass and stuff like that? So right. you realize that within the context of the medium that you're working in, it is so powerful that the influence is, well, you know, that's the way those people are. So that when you start to play judges and, and police officers and, you know, people of community standing, people in the world write to you, thank you, I never even knew that there was that opportunity. They start to investigate their own possibilities. That in itself is a modern miracle. It's a wonderful thing. The artist, however, says, why can't I play some badass son of them? I want to do that as well. Right. And, and that is the limitation sometimes that an artist um, can put himself on and not uh, experiment and explore abstraction. Uh, so um, I think we're entitled to abstraction. Yes. And um, I hope we see more of it because our images having arrived, they're never going to go away. Yes. That's a very good point. I, I appreciate that perspective. Um, I uh, also tell folks, and, and this is in the, 
music comparison. Uh, if you listen to Miles Davis or John Coltrane, I mean, that's abstraction uh, at its at, at its finest, I think, in, at its finest. in, in the music realm anyway. Um, yes. So uh, are there any uh, artists in particular that stand out to you that you're interested in uh, at the moment? Yes. Um, I, I'm looking at the very, very beginnings of careers. During COVID, I started the internet searches because of course you couldn't go to galleries and you, you know, you could interact with people. One of the things that I realized that was missing in, in my roster were artists from my own country. I was born in Guyana, South America. Um, I had gone to the Tate, seen Frank Boland's work. Um, I knew Hugh Locke's work. I knew Zach Ove, but he was from Trinidad, but I claim him. Um, and I thought, you know, this could be a wonderful section for you. And I've been searching and looking. So it's now become a hunt to not collect yet, but to actually investigate and learn who they are and what their influences are. So I am now reading sort of these huge Caribbean um, books, like well, this one is, is resting on from Mola, you know, contemporary art of the Caribbean archipelago. So archipelago. So it's it's a start for me to not only investigate, but it's it's very exciting to sort of become your new detective, art detective, a whole nother era yeah. area that I haven't actually explored. So there's that. Um, I spent some time in South Africa. They're marvelous artists there. Yeah. And um, while COVID seemed kind of on the ugly side, so much going on, I started to not want to see paintings that that had a, made a visceral kind of change in me. I wanted to see beauty and I wanted to see black beauty. And Layla Fanner from South Africa um, started to, well, I started to see her paintings that were sort of fantastical and sort of sweet and um, some would say a little benign, but they had this wonderful mystery of them where the woman was always so, so very dark and just one part of her was highlit, like her bottom lip or her oh. eye. And yet you knew this was a woman of color. Her, her derriere told you that and her <laughs> uplifted breast told you that. And, you know, there, there were many things that gave the hint besides the fact that Layla is um, um, of African descent as well. And um, I just... She also illustrated all of these beautiful flora and fauna of her country. Oh. And it hadn't been since Francois Covin, who's an Haitian artist who I also fell in love with years ago, um, that I really kind of went, ah, that's, that's lovely to look at. It, it, it lacks all turmoil and it offers you a moment to sit down and go into yourself and reflect, think of your day. And I would call them visual meditations. I really would. Ah. And so I thoroughly enjoyed her work. And I know that we get bombarded, particularly collectors, of all the, the next thing, the next thing that's up and coming. Right. And I note them and I put them aside. And I still enjoy the hunt myself. 
to go through and see other things. Like for instance, you could call me and tell me about a particular artist. And I would say, yes, send me the pictures and go on. And I think, great. And then within the genre of that artist, for instance, if they're from Austin, Texas, now I'm gonna look for several other artists from the same area, see what they're thinking and what they're doing. I, I kind of like to do a bit of research to learn about the artist just a little bit more, but how they actually came to putting brush to canvas, so. I think that's fabulous. I mean, and, and to yeah, characterize it like an art detective, I think that's out, outstanding. Yeah. What, a, what an interesting way to go about it. I actually would suggest to anybody out there who's collecting or thinking about collecting, uh, adopt a similar approach. I think that's fantastic. Well, you know what it does? It puts the brakes on an influential gallerist saying, these are going out the door like hotcakes. They'll all be sold out before the opening. You must take a look. Cece, what do you think? Oh, yeah. And at first we thought, oh, oh, yeah, well, let me see. And then something in my brain always says, calm down. Yeah. They have just arrived. The person is wet behind the ears. They've just graduated. And this is probably selling off their thesis show so that they can get out of debt and hawk. And the price is astronomical for a beginner. Yeah. And then that beginner is going to be shout out. Oh, yes, my first show was sold out. And suddenly you realize that you're in production. You're not being an artist for the moment. Yeah. You're being an art producer. And then you've got to produce things and it might not all sell. And then you are, well, I thought I was hot and what happened? So there's not enough love given to that artist who's just arrived, I don't think. Uh, not enough love, not enough patience, but it's exactly the same as watching a basketball player with the coaches behind the fence waiting for that day of graduation. <laughs> right, so, right. And if I, I can't do anything with you, but I could buy your mama a house. You know, <laughs> right, right. We are there right. in the art world. Yeah, exactly. And I've had actually collectors approach me too, was asking who is the hot artist? It's almost like a hot stock tip. And one of the requirements were, are they people of color? Ah, yeah. And I got so like, wow, that's really something. <laughs> and the interest in the art sometimes is not that much. Sad to say, that's the case. It's like any other asset is kind of taking the commodification of art to the extreme, perhaps just reducing it to uh, yet another asset in the portfolio, so to speak. Uh, yeah. And, you know, everybody has their own motives, I guess. But uh, I yeah. think that's kind of sad in a way, because as I was telling, I would tell people in my art appreciation classes, sometimes uh, they would almost apologize. Well, not almost actually apologize for buying what they like. And I was trying to explain that that's exactly the criteria you should use. And of course, what you like can evolve over time and doing what you do in terms of investigating can influence what you like, because as you learn more, you develop uh, a, a, an opinion and a, and a love perhaps, or maybe not a love or maybe a dislike or whatever. How, however, the, the, the path leads you and you, you follow it and see where it takes you kind of a thing. I think that's always the, the most, the best way to approach because that way, the worst that can happen is you're left with works of art that you actually love. Like. How, how, <laughs> Yay! How bad could that be, right? <laughs> I don't think I've ever bought anything on speculation. I, yeah. I don't think that's about to change. And um, I truly don't mind if 
in 50 years, the artwork is worth absolutely nothing um, or it's worth oodles. It doesn't make a difference to me because during its lifetime under my care and it has been loved and it's been shown and people have seen it and it's been loaned out to museums and schools and universities. I am already very happy with uh, what, what I have. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the uh, museum in uh, Senegal. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how that started? I know you said it's been since yes, uh, yes. bequeathed to the, to, the, to the country, but before the getting country. there, I was just wondering if you could talk about the establishment of it and so forth. Absolutely. Well, first of all, my husband, Boubacar Tone, was, uh, um, he procured is the right word, art for other museums, uh, particularly in Canada and private collections. Um, they were the classical African art, sculptures, things of wood. Um, and he was part of the group of men and women who as a village was changing over to Islam, would do the mad, what I call the ambulance chase mm -hmm. to collect those pieces before they were burnt or destroyed because that was part of the requirement to become an Islamic village. And so this would be like the 70s and 80s that he did that. Mm -hmm. And he actually felt one day that, you know, he really wanted a museum of his own. And um, by that time he had married me and I took a look at what that would require. First of all, we didn't really have any money at all, but what it would require the part that I don't think he'd given much thought to was that whether the piece was a fake buried for a few months and then come up, this is, you know, from such and such a village, whatever. Right. And he said, we didn't have the money to do all those testings. We didn't have the money to buy a substantial amount of work. I persuaded him that the museum needed to be in Senegal and that it needed to be contemporary art. And so that's how we did that switch over. So, uh, he moved from art that he knew all about to contemporary art, which he knew very little about. What he did know was sculpture. And so that was sort of his formulation. And I hurried up and got to know uh, contemporary art of the African diaspora as fast as I could uh, in between takes and on holidays. And we spent you know 20 years just trying to get that together we wow. started a, a young person's prize uh, and therefore we were able to collect art from many places and see what people were doing and then one of the things that i thought made our museum unique was we had uh, invited artists from abroad from the african diaspora and it was always so mother africa could see what her children were doing. Oh, you that's know? wonderful. I'm getting chills hearing you explain yeah, that. It, it was just such a lovely, lovely idea that we tried to execute. And for quite a while, it was considered the little gem of a musty place in Senegal. And uh, I think Bubakar may not have told me, but he may have known that he was dying maybe since 20... 12, 2013, I think he knew he was ill. Uh -huh. By 2014, everyone knew he was ill. And so he, he wrote to the government, it was the first prize and pride prize that was given 
from a Senegalese person to the country itself. Prizes had come from Germany, from you know France, Korea, and, and it was the first sort of private institution that was gifted to the, the country. And to be honest, they simply didn't understand it. Uh, they, you know, gifts come from the Europeans. We don't right. give ourselves gifts. And he tried to persuade them that, you know, we should expect gifts from ourselves and we yeah. should expect um, to take care of the gifts that we're given and value them. And um, it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that all around them, they kept saying, the government, they will, they will not do a good job with this. But anyway, before he died, they started, they fixed the roads and they, they tried to create um, public pathways because obviously it was going to be open to uh, the general public. And uh, um, it is now embroiled in um, new political changeovers and so on. Oh, but sorry. sorry to hear that, hopefully. Yes. What I did do was I sort of cleansed myself of it and I walked away and kind of went, okay, um, that was his choice and he gave it to them. And uh, I kind of just fixed my heart yeah. and said, I will start something else with what I've got. And that's how that happened. So I don't know, maybe one day they will gift me all of those paintings <laughs> if they're not going to do anything with them. And, and, uh, I uh, certainly hope they do. I mean, that would be such a wonderful yeah. thing for them to. Yeah, but I have to say that while it was running, it was a lovely, lovely place to be. People just walked into its gates and kind of went, oh, it, it really was gorgeous. That's awesome. So was it in Dakar itself or on the, uh, elsewhere? It, it's in Almady, which is about um, a 15-minute ride in a car. Yes. And, you know, Dakar, since we first got there, has spread out. And you, you have to call it Dakar. I but see. the neighborhood is Almady. So hence you started the foundation, you kind of segued from, from that to, to yes. getting your foundation yes. going and, and establishing. And, and there's a physical, I just wanted to, regarding your, uh, the, the museum first, it was, it's a physical structure too, the houses this. Yeah, I'd love to send you photographs just so that you see what it was. Yeah, I'm curious, yeah. Uh, that's, that's yeah. Uh, but what a fab fabulous thing, I think. By the way, my relationship with the stars began with uh, uh, the Musée Boribana, the Boribana Museum, and Alison Saar was our first American uh, artist in, uh, visiting and uh, exhibiting there. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It, is her work a part of the collection of the museum, too? It is. Oh, okay. Oh. As is Betty's. As is yeah. Betty's. Fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. I think that's great. And are they both represented in your foundation uh, collection as well? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, excellent. Uh, now in, in my foundation, all of the sides are represented. Leslie, Betty, uh, Allison, yes. Oh, excellent. And I was just curious, did you happen to see the show at, at LACMA of Betty's work that was there not too long ago? Oh, yes. Uh, I thought it was fabulous. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was great. Fantastic. Blues by bed. Fabulous beast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are you still actively uh, collecting now? I kind of got that sense from our discussion here. It sounds like it. I am. Yeah. I am. Um, I guess the last piece I got uh, yesterday um, was from uh, a new artist, and 
his name is Tades Mesfin uh, from Ethiopia. Oh. And he's been doing a series of market women, but they're so different. To say market women, you would think, well, you know, every single airport has got market women sitting there. But <laughs> this was different. Um, he is the, the the head of the art department in Addis at the university, and he has a thriving um, art uh, business. Is the I guess the right word, um, but um, he's very well collected, and I collected him. I sold his work many years ago um, because of Messai um, on Pico. There was one piece that I wanted for myself, but I always had the rule that as the gallerist, you are the last and you make sure that your clients get what they want. And when that piece went out the door, it was like, enjoy. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, so 25 years later, I, I collected a piece of his for an astronomical <laughs> it might have been better 25 years ago at least from that point just of view, to right? rattle it out of that <laughs> yes but um i i'm really glad that um first of all that i was able to do it um and uh and i have it as part of what i call the the collector's story uh, tell me yeah. about that the, the collector's story what, what, what do you mean when I say the collector story, I think when we talk about when we started to collect and what was the first thing you collect, and then over the years, um, how you collected it, the ones that got away, yeah, it's yeah. also part of your story. Oh, okay. The one, there is a piece of Beasley's that I stood in your gallery and stared and stared and stared and stared. And, you know, each sort of decade, um, there is always a, a group of artists who are just out of arm's reach. And just when you think you've finally gotten enough bucks to get them and you go back again it's like too late no <laughs> so um this was the the situation with the with the Mesfin's piece and, oh, okay. and, and of course they got smaller and smaller and so fine i was able to get my little piece <laughs> Henry wiley is another person who ah, uh, yeah. you know came to me as a young man yeah. and uh, um his friend was working for me that summer and I was going to Africa and, and he said he would uh, do some paintings for me over the summer and I bought paintings out of his I think this is post-graduation he had been working in San Francisco mm -hmm. but he had gotten the um, the residency at Studio Museum of Harlem yeah. and and um, he was trying to now get funds to pack up and you know have supplies and everything to to go to new york city yes. and i said okay so by the end of the summer you know you do these things and we'll pay you whatever and and that's what happened but i also bought things in his book so i think by the time he left i had three new paintings and i had maybe about uh, five or six um paintings that were over the course of him becoming an artist and then um the first impression of what he wanted to do at studio was one of the paintings. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Now cut to the chase. I mean, it's more than a down payment for the average house. So. Oh yeah. His, um, his market is uh, skyrocketed yeah, for sure. But 
But my love for him and the support of him still exists in so many things. My husband helped him with um, establishing uh, people to help with Black Rock and the building of it and so on. Uh-huh. So we've had this ongoing relationship. I've recorded um, some of the, the voiceovers for the films that he'd, he's done as part of his art practice. Uh-huh. And uh, we've kept up a fantastic relationship uh-huh. over many, many years. And I, I would have to say that I've done that with several artists and there's something kind of fantastic that we are growing along with these artists. I've been a great admirer of Samela Lewis. I am still with her. Yes. I'm still with Betty. Yes. Artists moved to, Artist Lane moved to Detroit. I'm still in contact. Yes. With and all those women there. are in their 90s too, we should add. Yeah. I mean, that's just remarkable. Yeah. And their impact yeah. is, is incredible. And that's the one thing I wanted to ask you, too. So that's an interesting sort of uh, thing. On one hand, like taking Kehinde Wiley, for example, I mean, uh, how do you feel about it? It's It's good for them, obviously, when their market goes way up. But for the average person who's trying to invest, obviously, the prices go a little high and, you, and you're kind of stuck. But I don't know. That's that's one of those things, I guess. I was just curious what your take on well, that. Well, you know, for Kehinde, it, it kind of does the double jump. So there comes a point where um, very few people of color can afford his work. There's that. And then there becomes a point when his works are in the boardrooms and in the exclusive places where we don't get to see them. And then it goes to museums, which kind of comes back full circle where people from the public can now walk in and see his work. Yes. Not only in New York, but in any country in the world. He's everywhere from China to the United States to Europe to Africa. So he's a fulfillment of an artist's dream in the sense of starting off and becoming and becoming and becoming and arriving and then giving back. His residency is a form of giving back. His his works um, now being bought uh, and sought after in museums. In, in a way it falls on him. It's a way that one gives back because yes. now as a member of the public, I certainly can't afford um, to buy a piece, but I can certainly afford to pay a ticket and go in and see a piece. Sure. And it has to see a Kehinde Wiley to me has the same reaction of getting in line at the Louvre to go see that Mona Lisa. What is all the fuss about? And just <laughs> right, right. See the Marilyn Monroeizing of her behind the oh, yeah. the glass. And oh yeah, flash bulbs going incessantly. Right, and yet, detective wise, right across from Marilyn at the Louvre, there is a marvelous, massive mural with several people of color dressed in magnificent raiments of red, and like, who are those people? How are they at that feast? Yeah, it's a of Canaan and it's like oh wow we are documented this painting is from the 1700s it's like so a lot of things can happen yes a lot of things can happen oh yes yes well CCH this has been fabulous I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, before before we go I just wanted to ask one last question if you could just tell us a little bit about the piece that we see behind you it's uh, partially visible but can you can you tell us a little bit about that one 
Okay. Will it help if I just raised her up a little yeah, bit? Yeah, sure, sure. Let, yeah. Um, without sort of jerking it up too right, much. Right, right. Uh, there. Oh, yeah, and there it is. That's, that's good. It's, it's all the way to the ceiling. It's very, very nice. But this is this is a lovely painting in the sense that it actually spotlights what I what I call the um, the Picasso syndrome, where you see multiple eyes and faces. Yes. It's a singular mermaid caught in a net with oh. fish and everything else. But it's the fact that she is trying to get out that gives oh, her a yeah. face here and a face here and a foot here and a foot a foot and a hand and a tail. You oh, know, wow. it, yes. it's like it's. I think a spectacular piece of, of, of uh, being caught and it has more movement than one would expect. And yeah. uh, it's by Kine Ao, A-W, and she is an artist from Senegal and she happens to be in the United States now um, uh, exposition, um, ex, uh, exhibiting at uh, Musea. I believe it's in Denver, Colorado. Oh, excellent. Thank you for letting us know about that. And I encourage yeah. people to follow up and, and check that out. And, and it's online because it's, I, I don't think, once again, it's a COVID uh, bound. So um, you can see her online. And there are three or four really spectacular pieces amongst the uh, the show too, I, I find. Oh, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And one last question. So uh, in terms of the foundation, is there any... Uh, or is it already available online to see some of the works in your collection? Is that in the it's office? Not ready online. As I said, we're still archiving and doing um, uh, cataloging, et cetera. Yes. But um, is that, that would be one of the things. Um, it'll be under the Quarantine Cottage House. Ah. Quarantine, ah. one of the rivers in Guyana. Ah. Um, cottage House, because the house kind of looks like a, a cottage, a giant cottage. Ah. Um, but... Uh, I am hoping to have it ready, hopefully by December. I, I think that's realistic. Uh, okay. Well, we'll be all anxiously awaiting. That would be great to see. And well, Maybe you'll invite me back and we can talk about it. Oh, well. my goodness. We'd love to, for sure. Thank you, this has been a marvelous experience for me and hopefully everybody else. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Thank you. Everyone, uh, thank you again for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.